uh, this morning that I was reminded this last week of the great joy and peace that there is in being able to cast all your anxiety on Jesus. Amen? That, um, you know, I've had, I've had trouble sleeping. Uh, I had trouble sleeping a few nights this week, and uh, as a result, spent some time praying and reading the Bible and so forth. And because I thought, well, God's up anyway. Uh, so if, we're, if I'm going to be up, I might as well talk to somebody else who's also up. And just being able to go to the Lord and say, okay, here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm anxious about. Here's what's bugging me. Here's what's stirred up turmoil in my heart. It's just a great relief. And knowing that we serve a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God of tender care for us, who promises to be with us every day through all those things, is just a great blessing. And um, that doesn't have anything to do with my message this morning. But I wanted to share that with you because I know that some of you came here this morning tired and anxious and feeling beat up and wondering and maybe hoping that today would be a day that you would go away refreshed. And I hope that you do find that here this morning as we worship God together, as we read His Word, as we pray together, uh, to be able to uh, cast all your cares on Jesus and to look to Him for peace and rest is a great thing indeed. So this morning... uh, we are going to seek encouragement from God's Word and know and put our confidence in the fact that Jesus has promised to be with us uh, every day until the very end of the age, he says. Remember? Behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It literally reads every day. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what comes up, that he is, he is with us and he is coming back for us to bring us to be in glory with Him forever. And, though we are not yet at that end, we are at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, those, some of you are thinking, praise Jesus. We are at the end of 1 Corinthians, and we will do something else, and we will. Um, uh, next week, I have a buddy of mine coming in to preach, and I'm going to go preach in his church. So we're going to swap and uh, my girls are still objecting to the idea that they are going to go with me. They would rather be here. Uh, and I understand that. Uh, I would rather be here as well, but I am doing a favor for a friend, and he's returning it for me. Uh, but, the, but after that, we're going to look at the issue of conflict. Uh, not because we are in conflict, but because we are not. And because we need to know before the elephant charges... How to respond. Amen? And uh, if you have been married longer than eight seconds, or you have children, or you have friends, or a job, or in fact breathing, you're going to need to know how to deal with conflict with other people. Because two people uh, equals conflict uh, very often from the garden onward. And so we're going to look at, we're going to spend about four weeks on that. And then. Um, I think we may look at one of the minor prophets between here and Christmas. Look at uh, probably look at Micah, 
as we lead up toward Christmas, and that'll be fun and exciting to, to look at the prophet and see what he has to say about the coming of Jesus. And then first of the year, I think we're going to turn toward the book of Exodus, about getting out of slavery and um, God conquering over the gods of the pagan world and leading his people forth. And then we'll maybe pick up 2 Corinthians after we've had a long exodus uh, out, of, uh, out of these folks and their issues. But we're at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, so if you'd find your way there, uh, we'll look at the end of this book. And again, as I said last week, there's a lot of just little, this, is, this, is, this doesn't outline well. There's not a lot of flow of thought. It's just kind of little staccato little thoughts of things he wants to make sure he squeezes in before he signs off uh, until the next time. And so um, I want to look first at verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now this little sentence is not that important in the big scheme of Scripture, but it does remind us that the people populating the Scriptures are real people, that these are not plaster saints or some sort of heroic image that sometimes we get. These are normal folks, and Paul is doing his best. He says, look, I tried to convince Apollos to go back to you. He doesn't want to go. (laughs) And Apollos was content to continue ministering in the, uh, in the province of Asia, which is over in modern-day Turkey, over on the west edge of it, across the Aegean from Corinth. And he says, you know, I tried to convince him he doesn't want to come. He is going to come when he can. Uh, that's probably why Paul sent Timothy, his, his, uh, his younger disciple, over to them to preach to them and deliver this letter with the brothers. But Apollo says, I don't want to go. And it may be that a reason Apollos doesn't want to go is because if you remember back in the early part of the book, Apollos is one of the people that people are forming factions around. And Apollos doesn't want to give encouragement to these folks. Ah, we got our boy back. Now we got a real preacher in here. And all of you, all the rest of you need to listen to what he has to say because we follow Apollos. Apollos is like, I don't want any part of that mess. Send Timothy. And, uh, and so Paul does. Uh, so let's move on here. Verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, those first two words, be watchful, are very significant. They borrow uh, from Jesus' instruction to his disciples. Do you remember the parable of the ten virgins? Uh, Jesus tells his disciples this parable about ten virgins, and five of them had enough oil to make it until the bridegroom came, and five of them did not. And he said, remember to keep watch, to keep watch. And Jesus tells a number of parables, the point of which is to keep watch. If the master of the house had known at what hour he was coming, I mean, if the servants in the house had known what hour the master was returning, they would have kept watch. And he's saying, guys, keep watch. The idea is to have eager expectation that Jesus is coming back and to live your life in light of that. That Jesus is coming back. Amen? Now, I don't mean to scare anybody. You know, sometime when I was growing up, 
uh, we had some preachers that I heard like that that would say, now if you go to that movie, is it a movie that you would want to be caught in if Jesus returned at that moment? You know, and I was kind of like, whoo, terrified, you know. I don't know if, if Jesus would approve of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. I, I, and it wasn't that I was in some really negative place, but, I, you know, you're trying to evaluate your choices. And the point of what the Get Brother was saying was a good, a good point, even if his application was a little bit skewed. Um, the point is that we are to live our life in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. That we are not to act as if, well, Jesus is never coming back, so I guess I'll do whatever I want. I remember when I was a kid, my mother would hand out to, uh, when we were old enough to stay by ourselves, she would give us a list of things to accomplish. And she would say, I want these done before I return. And we did not know at what hour the master of the house was returning. But we understood that we were to be busy accomplishing her will as she was gone. And that if we were, that there would be praise, glory, honor, and Charleston Jew. And if not, which by the way, have you ever had any of those as an adult? They're nasty. But as a kid, they were great, okay? We'd freeze them and eat them. That was the reward if you had your chores done when mom got home. But we are awaiting a much greater master, and we are awaiting with him a much greater reward. And so Paul says, keep watch. Keep watch. Live your life in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. And related to that, he says, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now, uh, to put it in contemporary terms, he's saying, don't wimp out. The pressures of the world and the flesh and the snares of the devil naturally push us toward compromise, don't they? And they push us toward abandoning those things that cause us not to fit in to the world around us. But if it is true that humanity is sinful, and it is, and if it is true that sin affects every part of us, not just our bodies, not just our souls, but also our thinking, and it, and it does, then it's also true that following Jesus means swimming against the current of the culture in which we live. And as I've said before, the culture in which we live is becoming day by day more and more Corinthian and very much less Puritan influenced. We have a great godly heritage in the New England Puritans in this country, but that is fading fast. In fact, it, it seems like it's a, it, that trend is accelerating by the day. And you are going to find yourself, if you are going to stand firm, swimming against the tide of the culture. In fact, this word stand firm uh, translates into, into uh, Latin as the, as, the, as the battle cry of the, Romans, uh, of the Roman uh, Praetorian Guard. The Roman Praetorian Guard were the elite troops. They were the army rangers, the navy seals of the day. And they never retreated. In fact, on their armor, they only had armor on the front. 
because they didn't need to be protected on the back. They never turned around. They always advanced. And the battle cry they had was, was this, this word, stand. Stand firm. And their, their goal was to defend as long as they could reach with their sword. And then they would have another guy standing at the end of that. And another guy standing at the end of that. And as far as they could reach, that was the ground that they would defend. And they would go up and down the line, stand, stand firm. And the idea is this, is that you're not to move off of the spot you have been assigned to defend. And he says, stand firm in the faith. That there is the faith. There are, there's, there's just one. There's just one. There are not many paths up the mountain that lead to God. There is one. There are not many ways of understanding who God is. There is one. And He has revealed Himself graciously to us in a book that we might understand what the faith is. And He says you're to stand in it. And to not move off of it. And there's lots of pressure to do that in our day. Just as there was in Paul's day. Whether in terms of morality, whether in terms of doctrine, whether in terms of the reliability of the Scriptures, whether in terms of beliefs about creation, and whether or not God is a creator, or whether He's some sort of a weird watchmaker who winds it up and lets it go. There's all kinds of pressure to to fail to stand firm. And so Paul gives them the same reminder he's giving us uh, by the Spirit, to stand firm, to be strong. How about this? Act like men. I think, you know, we don't like language like that in our culture. We don't like to, to understand that there are innate differences between men and women. If you have ever been married, you automatically understand that there are innate differences between men and women. If you are breathing human, you already know that as well, right? I mean, just on something as simple as as stuff at the bathroom, right? Like a guy has six things, they fit in a bag like this, and, you know, he can get ready for anything. Combat, getting married, preaching the gospel, uh, whatever. You know, he's got six things in a bag, and Right? You know, you get married as a guy and you go into the bathroom and there's all this stuff on the counter and you go, what is all this? You got the little Nazi war doctor thing for your eyelashes and whatever. You know, what is that? Right? You're confused about all this stuff. There are differences between men and women. And he is saying, act like men. What's he saying? He's saying the, one of the best qualities of manhood is this, that when that when the battle sounds, that when disaster strikes, that men who are men run to the guns. On 9-11, when the towers were struck, there were all kinds of people. I don't know if you remember the footage. It's burned in my brain. All these people are running down the street away from those falling towers, but there's some other people who are running. And they're running the opposite way. And they're running into the building. They are the men of the NYPD, the men of the, of the FDNY, who are going into the building to rescue. 
And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, act like men. That when the battle is hot, you don't run. That you run toward the battle to rescue whom you may. And that's our task, men and women. That's our task, is to go out into a hostile culture that is at war with us and at war with the Savior whom we follow and act like men to have a little bit of steel and gristle to you. That you go out to those folks and you seek to pull from the flames those whom you can. Amen? Act like men. Be strong. Don't wimp out. Our call is to bring truth and life to lost and dying people. Act like men. Be strong. Let's move on. We want to honor also godly men. This is verse 15 to 18. Now I urge you, brothers, I know that the household, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. And what Paul is doing is encouraging the Corinthians to follow the leadership of good and godly men. And he specifically mentions the household of Stephanus. And these three guys, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, were Paul's first converts in the area around Corinth to the north. And a couple of these guys have interesting names. Fortunatus is named for the uh, goddess Fortune. And so if you were to translate his name into contemporary English, you'd call him Lucky. And then Achaicus is a Latin name that means the Greek. You remember Jimmy the Greek? This is, this is the, that kind of a nickname, the Greek guy. And so Paul's letter is going back with Steve and Lucky and the Greek. That's their names. And these were real people. And Fortunatus and Achaicus were common names for slaves. And since Corinth was settled as a Roman colony by freed slaves, these guys' names probably bear witness to their past life as slaves. They were not high-status men. But Paul says you're to give these guys high status in the church. These are the kind of men, he tells the Corinthian church, you be subject to these guys. Slaves were the lowest rung on the social ladder, and former slaves were not much higher in most people's estimate. But in the church, godly character means much more. And so those who are formerly subject to an earthly master now follow a heavenly master. And those in the church are to follow these men and to be subject to them. And, and what I, the reason I bring all this up is this, is what I want you to see is that the gospel is not simply a message we believe, although it is that. It's never less than that. It also points its way to a way of thinking and living which is totally inverted from the way the culture normally thinks. And is going to become increasingly so. 
you know, you might be a man who has an hourly job. Maybe you're slinging burgers at Hardee's. Maybe you're changing oil at a Jiffy Lube. Maybe you are uh, putting parts together on an assembly line over at Cap or Komatsu or wherever. Maybe you're a guy with dirt under your fingernails and you think, well, there's not really a lot of life where I can be a person, a man of honor. But you know what? Here's reality. In the church, it's not your position out there. It is not how esteemed you are by everybody else out in the world. It's not whether you are a rich man or have a certain job. It's none of that. It's does this person follow Jesus? Do they live like Jesus? Paul says, give recognition to those kind of people and those kind of men. So whether you're making eight bucks an hour or eighty thousand a year, what matters is what kind of character you have. Not what kind of status the world gives you. Remember, we follow a man who had no place to lay his head. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He wore all the clothes that he owned. And yet people followed him because there is something about this man. And no one ever spoke the way this man speaks. No one ever taught the way this man teaches. And the reality of it is, is that our culture has an inverted set of values. And so even if you are uh, morally perverse, if you're wealthy and famous, you have status. But in the Scriptures and in the church, worldly status matters not at all. Godly character matters supremely. Amen? Now, he says, he says, that these guys have devoted, how do you know they have godly character? They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to these and every fellow worker and laborer. He says, I rejoice at the coming of these three men, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. And what he's saying there is this, that I miss, he's, this, is, this is Paul being very tender with the church. He's saying, I miss you guys. I'm ministering here and I'm doing what I should be doing and I'm walking with the Lord and I'm preaching the gospel just like I should, but I miss you. And so it was good to see these guys who are from you. These are probably the three guys that brought the initial letter and report to Paul that occasioned the writing of the letter to begin with. But he says, even though there's all this negative stuff going on in the Corinthian church, and these three guys have, have got to take a trip to go see Paul to figure out what to do with it, he says, when they got here, they refreshed me, and I rejoiced at their coming. And I know what that's like. Because while I love all of you, not everyone I love is here. Amen? 
I have, uh, I have family in Indianapolis. I have family in China. I have uh, church family in Cedar Rapids and in Dallas. And I love them. And so when I see some of these folks, as I saw some of them here a few weeks ago, some of the folks from Cedar Rapids and some of my family came in uh, from Indianapolis, and I was like, this is so cool. And you rejoice, don't you? And Paul says, this is what seeing these folks from you was like to me. It was like a cold drink of water on a hot day. Give recognition to these guys. When we are looking for elders here at Chili Bible, we're looking for the kind of men like this who are devoted to the service of the saints, who are encouraging, who are men of godly character and long conversion. And we try to give recognition to those kind of folks. When we're looking for ministry team leaders and people to serve in various ministry. We're looking for folks who have devoted themselves to service, who have a heart for other people who love their Lord Jesus and that comes out in their life. And and the reason we do that is that you produce whatever you honor. Amen? Every organization, whether it's a church whether it's a corporation, whether it's a government, whatever it is, produces whatever they honor. And we want to produce men and women who are godly, who worship Jesus with their whole heart and their whole life, who testify about Jesus with their lips as well as their life. Men and women whose lives are integrated with the Word of God. And we want to give recognition to them. Because whatever you promote is whatever you produce. And Paul is trying to encourage them here in these verses to produce more men like these guys. Let's move on. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, this section looks like the end of a letter. And in a way, that's all it is. There are some, excuse me, there are some shout-outs from believers across the Aegean, the Asian churches of modern-day Turkey, and Aquila and Priscilla, who were Paul's ministry partners and Apollos mentors. Uh, greetings from the brothers. Every, everybody's, everybody who's there with him is trying to tell them, hey, say hello to the church in Corinth. We love you. Uh, but in a deeper way, I think, even as he's doing these greetings, which most people just skim over as they're reading their Bible, I think Paul is still teaching them and modeling for them what believers uh love for one another ought to look like. This may come as a newsflash to you. I hope not. But being a Christian is more than you and your relationship with Jesus. It's an invitation into a community, into a life 
that is shared with other people who are also part of the family of God. And so, and so while people are saved individually, they are not saved to remain simply individual. We are not saved to an individualistic faith. We're saved to a communitarian faith where we are part of a body, part of a family, part of an organism that is alive and that worships Jesus together. And the idea is, is that you are to be friends with and regard as brothers and sisters those folks who are part of the community with you. If you do not have saved family, you already understand this. If your, bro- if your natural brothers and sisters or mom and dad or cousins or whatever or don't know Jesus, you understand intuitively that you have in some sense more important and more in common uh, links with people who are part of the church than people who are not. I have some, I have some cousins and an aunt and uncle that are Mormons, and it is galling to my soul that that is where they are. They've gone down a pathway that does not lead toward Jesus. Nevertheless, they think they're going the right way. But we have much less in common than I have with most of the rest of my family because we don't share some of the most important things together. Common faith, common membership in the family of God. And Paul is trying to model this that the church is to be part of the community and the church should have love for each other across geographic and cultural and linguistic and socioeconomic lines. And by, by the way, just by way of application here on this part of the text, did you know, I don't know if you know this, I hope you do, but if you don't, let me inform you that some of the oldest, most historic churches in the world are right now being destroyed all across the Middle East. And people are being burned out of them and made refugees and fleeing for their lives in places like Syria and Iraq and Turkey. And Christianity is being purged out of these countries. And these are our brothers and our sisters. And we need to pray for them. Because For them, the passages about persecution are not theoretical. They are real. And Christians all across Egypt and the Middle East and everywhere are being persecuted and literally, in some cases, hunted down. And they are our brothers and our sisters. And we need to pray for them. In fact, Let's pray for them right now. God, our Heavenly Father, we, we lift our voices up to you in grief for our brothers and sisters in Egypt and in Syria and in Iraq and in Turkey and all across the Muslim world who are being persecuted for their faith. Father, we pray that you would put your protection on them that you would give them your favor, that the exile and the refugee would find a home, that you would be father to those who have been made fatherless, that you would be husband to the widow, comfort to the widower, 
Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church around the world. We pray that you would remind them that you are with them, and that this life is temporary and glory awaits. And Father, help them to feel our love as, as, uh, as they already feel yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the end of verse 20 is funny. Uh, when I was uh, in college, there were some guys I ran around with that thought it would be good if we applied this part at, at uh, chapel at our Christian college. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right? We were lining up to try that one. And, uh, and sometimes people wonder about that, and they go, you know, uh, hmm, that's cultural. We're just going to ignore that. In our culture, we shake hands, and it's the same kind of greeting. And I understand where they're coming from, particularly given my hormonal former friends. Uh, we don't go in big in our culture normally for physical affection. And a lot of times, uh, that's part of our cultural baggage, right? Most of us are, are descended from various tribes of northern European extraction, and we kind of have that British stiff upper lip and... Nice to see you in personal space is, is much different and all that, right? We're not Arabs. We're not Russians that greet one another by kissing on each other on the mouth or these kind of things. We don't do that. What, so what's Paul doing? When, when he's encouraging holy kissing, what he's saying is this. You're communicating the deep theological truth that you are family. In a Middle Eastern culture, particularly in this, in this day, even husbands and wives did not kiss in public. I don't know if you know that. If you go to the Middle East today, um, husbands and wives do not hold hands in public. And if you do, uh, some, some little uh, old lady will come and whack you with her cane because you're acting inappropriately having that kind of affection in public. How dare you do that? But on the other hand, if you see your sister or your brother in public or your mom or your dad, it's perfectly acceptable to kiss them even on the mouth. And that is weird. All right? But nevertheless, no one cares. Why? Because it's family. You know, that the, the, the wife in Song of Solomon says at one point, she says, I wish that you were my brother so that I could kiss you on the lips in public. Okay? Uh, that seems a little strange until you understand the context. This is the context. Paul is saying, look, you all are family. And you can treat each other like family. And sometimes in the church of Jesus Christ, I don't know why this is true. But, I, but here's the reality that we sometimes experience. We come into the church and we put on our nicest clothes and we look good and we ask each other, how are you doing? And we, and we all say, fine. Oh, that's good, brother. Oh, I'm glad you're doing well, sister. Right? But we don't open up our chest and let anybody see what's inside there. Because we don't really regard each other as trustworthy because we don't really think of each other as family. And Paul is saying this. 
I, it's fine if we sh continue to shake hands. I don't expect a rush of people wanting to kiss me. Please don't. It would make me really uncomfortable, <laughs> okay? Karen, you can continue. But the, but the rest of you, no, okay? Don't do that. But, but what he is saying is this, is that we are family. And we ought to treat each other as family. And love each other as family. Because we are. That the words that we use about, you know, brother and sister and, and so forth are not just, you know, spiritual, theological lingo. That they reflect realities that are true. And he says, so greet one another with a holy kiss. It's not a lascivious thing. It's not a, it's not a, a romantic thing. It's a family thing. In my family, I kiss my sons, I kiss my daughters, I kiss my wife. We hug. We love each other. Paul says, y'all are family. And it's an important thing to reinforce for these people in particular. Because most of them didn't like each other all that much. I don't know if you've noticed. They had trouble getting along. He says, y'all are family. You know, Every now and then, Karen will get a hold of two of the kids, and she'll, you know, get them in a room and like be like, you know, stand them apart from one another when they're ready to swing at each other, and give them this speech on "You are family," and it's cold outside, and the world is nasty, and you are—that's your brother, that's your sister. Get along, and it doesn't work, but it's a great speech, right? And and. And it really is, okay? This is the same idea. Paul is saying, y'all are family. Get along. Love each other. And it ought to be safe. You know? If you come to my house, I will not greet you in my fuzzy pajama pants and t-shirt with my hair all askew. But I will at home among my kids. Why? Because it's family. And church ought to be that kind of place where you're allowed to be who you really are. And where we welcome each other as we really are. Because we're family. I'll wrap this up here. Paul says, I write this reading with my own hand. You know, there's so much factionalism and division. He's wanting to make sure they know, I'm the guy who wrote this. He's had a secretary write most of it. But he says, look here, this is my handwriting, you can tell. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now this is, that's pretty st strong language. It means let him literally be cursed to hell. Because many of the problems that are going on in the church are due to the fact that some of these folks have no love for Jesus. And it's showing up in their behavior. A strong language. And then he says, our Lord come. So it's, in, it's literally a, a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, maranatha. Our Lord come. He says, this life is stressful. This life is hard. This life sometimes includes persecution and suffering and sickness and conflict 
and death. Jesus comes. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Because do these people need grace? Amen. They need grace. How about these people? Do they need grace? Amen. We all need grace. We need forgiveness. We need, we need understanding. We need recognition that we are not yet as we shall be. And a, and, a, and a making allowances and grace for the fact that we are not yet perfect. And then this is, the, this is one of the things that I think is really interesting. Verse 24, this is the only letter that Paul concludes this way. With a reaffirmation of his love, he says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And Paul has had to say a lot of hard things to this group. Some of them are probably wondering whether or not Paul loves them or not. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, they're basically going to be an open rebellion. And he's writing, trying to put things back together because many of them have rebelled against what he had to say. But he says, don't forget, I love you. Don't forget, I love you. May May my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And that's a good way for us to wrap up. Before we take communion, let me tell you once more, don't forget, I love you. I love you, Marty. I love you, Marty. I do. Marty's my brother. He encourages me. And y'all are my brothers and sisters, and I love you. And we enjoy being together because we're family. I look forward to this every week. Not just because I get to preach, but because I get to be with you. And that's a great thing. A wonderful privilege. So let's take communion together. And let's have those who are going to serve with me our communion elements. Come on down. And let's look at the scriptures together. As they're coming. Paul says in chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we're going to pass out the bread, and we would encourage everybody who has put their personal trust in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sins, and was raised from the dead to give them new life to participate with us. But we would also ask that you'd wait until everybody has been served so we can participate together as a family.